Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. To Matthew chapter 26. I want to read four verses this morning. Matthew chapter 26. First gospel in the New Testament. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. Please follow along as I read. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine till that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Please pray once again with me. Our Father, now in this hour, we pray that what we have not you would give us, What we know not, you would teach us. And what we are not, you would make us. We pray through Christ. Amen. 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 Well, today is, in some ways, um, really something of a special occasion for our church. We actually will be celebrating communion together for the first time as a gathered body of the Lord's people. Now, we've been meeting, uh, actually, for about a year as a group of Christ's disciples. We started off as a small group Bible study last September, and then in January, we began meeting for worship. Uh, But it was actually only uh, just a couple of weeks ago that we uh, formally constituted and covenanted as a new church, as a body of Christ's people. Now, you might ask, and some of you have asked, especially if you've been with us for some time, uh, why the wait? to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why didn't we do it uh, a year ago when we were meeting in uh, the Cox home as a small group Bible study? Or why don't we do it back in January when we first started meeting uh, for worship? Well, that's because it's our conviction at Emmanuel that the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. It's something that Christ gives to His church, and therefore it ought ordinarily to be taken in the context of gathered, recognized assemblies of God's people. So that's the reason for the wait and why it's only now that we have the joy of celebrating communion with one another. So this morning, we come to the Lord's Supper. I would be interested uh, in knowing, seriously, what what each one of you uh, understands or believes or thinks about the Lord's Supper. Um, I would really be interested in interviewing each person here about what it is you believe takes place during communion. I think it would be interesting, it would be eye-opening, if maybe after the service I stood at the door... And I handed out maybe little three-by-five cards or a survey or something like that that asked basic questions. Okay, we just took the Lord's Supper. What do you believe just took place? What did you just experience? What just happened there? What was that all about? Um, Don't be afraid I'm not going to hand out a survey. But you might imagine a more realistic scenario. Maybe there's someone here, they're new to church, and they know that assemblies of God's people routinely sing and they pray, and there's only a sermon that's given Maybe the Lord's Supper is new to them, though. and The idea of having cups and and bread and different ones taking from that and us eating that in unison together, that might be new, and they might say, what is this all about? What on earth are you doing here? Uh, What is it that you think is taking place when you take the Lord's Supper? Well, I wonder, 
What would you say if a visitor to our church this morning asked that question? Now, here's why it would be so interesting to me to know uh, what we believe about that issue. I suspect that the subject of the Lord's Supper is one of the most under-addressed subjects in the church today. It was not so throughout church history. But I believe in the church today, you will rarely hear teaching and preaching on the subject of the Lord's Supper. But it was not that way. In fact, in church history, uh, throughout the ages, the Lord's Supper was seen quite often as a vital part of the worship services of God's people. And not only that, the Lord's Supper was understood to be a vital part of the believer's communion with Christ. A vital part of, of working out the faith and in communing with the Lord Himself and with His people. Well, perhaps today, and especially in Baptist circles, there's never been a time when there's been less teaching on the Lord's Supper, which I believe is truly tragic. The longer I'm a Christian and the more I study the Bible, the more I see the Lord's Supper as vital to the faith of believers. And I hope that over the next uh, 50 years, you'll hear tons of sermons here at Emmanuel on what the Lord's Supper is and what it ought to mean to the people of God. It would be in every way appropriate to have a series of sermons on the Lord's Supper. But my goal this morning is not to address everything that could be addressed on the subject of communion regarding the Lord's Supper, but I do want to address one question in particular. And it's that, that hypothetical question I just shared with you a moment ago. If someone were to walk in in about 30 minutes and to see us passing around the elements and taking the Lord's Supper together, they ask, what on earth is happening here? How should we answer that question? What is taking place? What is happening here? When an assembly of God's people gather together to take the elements of the Lord's Supper and to observe communion together, that's the question I want to answer this morning. What on earth is happening here as we observe the Lord's Supper? I have seven points, and don't be afraid. I'll seek to move through these quickly. We'll spend more time on the first couple of points and get faster as we move along. Seven answers to that question. What is happening here as we take the Lord's Supper? First of all, here, the conduct of the Lord's Supper... The death of Christ is symbolized. Here, the death of Christ is symbolized. Look with me again at Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Here, the death of Christ is symbolized. Now, in our particular social climate, I don't think you can talk profitably and productively about the symbolism of the Lord's Supper without talking first about the whole matter of symbolism in general. I personally think our culture is rather irreverent when it comes to uh, symbolism. We don't think deeply about symbolism. We don't pay attention to symbols. It's actually one of the reasons why I think it's particularly hard for Americans to understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament's full of symbolism, and we, we sometimes struggle entering in. There are symbolic acts, and even the way you position your body, whether you're kneeling or you're on the floor, or particular gestures, they're symbolic gestures, and sometimes it's hard for us to enter into that. But many other cultures in the world, especially Eastern cultures, are quite symbolic. But in the West, we're very irreverent about symbols. We don't have much of a, a place for symbols. And it, it, it causes us to stumble a little bit in understanding the symbolism that's contained in the Bible and even the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, of the bread 
and of the cup. And yet, I do think we have some semblance of symbolism in our culture. There are some symbols that I think most people at least, let's just say in the United States of America, would recognize. Uh, For example, uh, those who are married quite often will wear wedding rings. Not everybody chooses to do that. Uh, And sadly, I think in the Christian church, some are, are choosing not to wear wedding rings. I think that's tragic, but that's for another day. But quite often you see someone with a ring on a finger, you assume, uh, okay, they must be married. Okay, now this ring here that I'm wearing is not my marriage. It's not my marriage. It's a uh, metallic sort of band that someone fitted, customized to my finger that now I wear. It's not my marriage. My marriage is to a woman named Jenna. It's a living, vital relationship, a covenant, one flesh union before God, before his word and before his people. But this ring does, in a very real sense, represent or symbolize my marriage. So if I went home today, and I took off my ring at lunch, and I was spinning it, and suppose I flicked it into the trash, what do you think would happen? Well, my wife would either break down crying, or she'd be very irritated with me, and understandably so, because this ring symbolizes something. It's a symbol, it's a token. Some of us were at a wedding earlier this week and we saw a man and a woman make their vows to one another and they're given this ring, this symbol. And with this ring, I do thee wed. There's this symbolism that takes place there. Maybe you've seen, hopefully not in real life, but maybe in a show or in a movie, uh, there's a couple that's in an embattled sort of marriage and there's a scene, maybe the husband's by himself and he takes off his ring and he puts it in a drawer. What's being symbolized there? He's turning his back on the marriage. He's saying that that I'm no longer committed to my spouse. And putting that ring away is a symbol of him putting his marriage away. It's a symbol. So it's not the marriage itself, but it's a symbol of the marriage. We might think also of um, an American flag. Some of you may know there was a a popular football player named Colin Kaepernick. uh, Played for the San Francisco 49ers. There was all this this, uh, uh, fuss over this this quarterback who, when the Pledge of Allegiance was given, or excuse me, when the National Anthem was sung, rather than standing and removing his helmet and putting his hand on his heart, he knelt during the National Anthem. And regardless of what you think about that, it really did cause an uproar. Why? Well, it's symbolic, his, his posture. It meant something. It communicated something. Had Colin Kaepernick been kneeling on one knee ten seconds before the National Anthem was sung and then stood when it was sung, Probably wouldn't have any headlines or any press over that. It was a symbolic act that Colin Kaepernick sought to communicate. It's why so many Americans uh, uh, are quite justifiably so angry when they see someone burning an American flag. American flag is not the Declaration of Independence or the United States of America or freedom and liberty itself, but it's a symbol of those things. So people, people get quite animated when they see protesters burning an American flag. We have also symbolic gestures. One in our culture is a kiss. Uh, If you see one of the men in this church go up to one of the women in this church and kiss her on the lips, you can probably safely assume he's kissing his wife. Okay? Why? Because we recognize the kiss to be symbolic of a relationship, of a romantic bond, of a commitment between two people. There is still symbolism in our culture, in our day and age. Well, what symbols do we have here this morning? We have the bread, and we have the cup, and these are symbols. They're symbolic, and they represent 
the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ broken for His people. And that blood, or excuse me, that cup of grape juice represents the blood of Christ shed for the remission of sins. They're symbols. But don't forget, the purpose of symbols is to convey the reality that they signify. Symbols, by their very nature, by definition, they convey the reality that they signify. Symbols are, by definition, tangible. They're cogent. There's something we can touch. There's something that we can handle. And here we have the sacrifice of our Savior symbolized in the bread and in the cup. What was intangible becomes tangible in the Lord's Supper. What was invisible becomes visible. Everything about the Lord's Supper is vivid. There's something to see. There's something to touch. There's something to taste. There's an aroma. There's, there's an experience that takes place in the context of the Lord's Supper, in the context of these symbols. What a gift that is to our faith. God realizes that we're not only cerebral beings. But we're humans. We have wills. We have affections. We have emotions. We have eyes. We have hands. We have taste buds. And all of that is caught up in the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. I have a quote here from John Calvin. When I, when I first read this quote some years ago, um, I thought he went a little too far. I no longer think that. Okay, you could assess this statement yourself. John Calvin says, In the Lord's Supper, God accommodates himself to our grasp. Isn't that something? In the Lord's Supper, God accommodates himself to our grasp. Now, we don't believe in some mystical sense God Himself is physically in the bread and in the cup. We don't believe Jesus is physically there. But we do believe He is really there in a spiritual sense. And that in these symbols, God is in effect saying, Christ is in effect saying, I love you and here's the ring to prove it. Here's the word preached and here's the ring. Here's the symbols. Here's the the body symbolized in bread. Here's the blood of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the shed blood of Christ for the remission of sins, communicated in symbol form. I've given you these symbols as a gift to help to make the faith more tangible and cogent in our minds. It's all so vivid. It's all so visible and cogent and tangible. Here in the death of Christ, here in the Lord's Supper, the death of Christ Himself is symbolized. But now secondly, what is happening here? Here the death of Christ is remembered. Here the death of Christ is remembered. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We want to read verses 23 through 26. Here Paul is recalling the institution of the Lord's Supper. And he shares with us some more information about that first night in which the Lord's Supper was instituted. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We want to read verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Verse 25, In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Do this 
in remembrance of me. We're, we're to remember our Lord's death in the Lord's Supper. Now, I think this idea of remembering Christ is often misunderstood. There's a way in which we could celebrate the Lord's Supper that makes it out to be nothing more than something like a memorial service. If you've ever been to a memorial service, or maybe a context where you're remembering something like an old dead relative or friend, and hey, Jim, tell us a story about, about Bob who passed away. What are your, your favorite memories? And we, it's all, you know, we look back, and yeah, Jim was such a great guy, and you know, yeah, let's all you know, raise a glass to Jim. Uh, that's not what the Lord's Supper is like at all. When we think about remembering our Lord's death, it's not that, like we're just remembering the events and the death of an old friend and, and just thinking in the past tense about what took place. When we remember the Lord's death, it's not just calling to mind a memory of past events, but those memories of past events are meant to call to mind a present experience of our living Savior. And we're told to remember Christ we're being told to call our minds to think about Jesus and to go to him in communion with him. It's not just remembering past tense events. We have to remember past tense events. They're utterly vital and necessary, but why do we think upon the gospel and remember Christ's sacrifice for sins? It's to bring into the present tense a vivid experiential encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. That word remember, we shouldn't misunderstand that. It's, it's similar, though it's not the same exact Greek word. It's similar to the idea of that thief on the cross who said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's he saying there? Well, he's not saying, when you come into your kingdom, remember that there was a guy on the cross next to you. I have a memory of that past event. No, he means call me to mind and meet me and draw me in. He's talking about bringing these past events into the present tense. And so we are to remember as, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, that 2,000 years ago there was a sacrifice made for sins. We're to remember that Jesus' body was physically broken and his blood was shed for all of his people. But it's not just remembering like a memorial service some past event. We're to go to Christ and commune with him and call him to mind and have a present tense, vibrant and vital experience with him. So here, as we take the Lord's Supper together, the death of Christ is to be remembered. And those of you who observe, as the men and women of this church, all those who are followers of Jesus Christ partake of the sacrament, they are really communing with Christ. They are remembering their Savior and calling Him to mind and meeting with Him through communion. Now thirdly, what's taking place here? What is happening in the Lord's Supper? Here, thirdly, Christ Himself is present by His Spirit. Here in the Lord's Supper. Christ is present by His Spirit. I said this at the beginning of the service. Christ is wonderfully present in all the means of grace. And it's no different here in the Lord's Supper. Now you know, right, that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, right? You know that language I'm using? There are particular elements of worship that are understood to be means of grace, means by which... We experience the grace of Christ, a means by which Christ is revealed to us. Well, the Lord's Supper is one of the means of grace. It's often really sad to me. I've had uh, occasion in various Bible study contexts or, or meetings with, with college students, and there's always opportunity to ask, what are the means of grace? What do you understand to be the means of grace? People are always very ready to say, oh, Bible intake, uh, prayer. The communion of the saints, they won't use that language usually, but, but the church, the fellowship of God's people, these, these are the means of grace. 
But rarely is the Lord's Supper on the tip of the tongue. Very rarely do people list the Lord's Supper as one of the means of grace, which I, I think is truly tragic because the Bible does communicate it as a means of grace. In the Lord's Supper, Christ draws nearer to us and discloses Himself to us and reveals Himself to us in ways that He doesn't necessarily do when we're driving uh, uh, to work in the morning. It's a special means of grace. You know, if you come to our home uh, in the middle of the week, come to our address, come and visit us, my wife and I, we work from home, typically. Sometimes one or the other of us is out during the day running errands, meeting with clients, having meetings with people in the church. Uh, but usually, if you come on any given Tuesday, we're at home working together, okay? I'm usually down in my study, which is in the basement. And uh, suppose, midday, I decide I need to see my wife. I need to talk to her. I need to communicate a message with her. I need to confer with her about something important. Or maybe I just want to see her and tell her I love her and rub her shoulders, give her a kiss. But I need her presence. I need to find Jenna. I need to be in her presence, If you're in our house, uh, there are really only four rooms where my wife typically can be found. She's either in her office, or she's in the bedroom, or she's in the kitchen, or she's in the living room. I mean, on odd occasions, you might find her somewhere else. But typically in those four rooms, I don't know how many rooms there are in our house, but she's in those those four places. So if I decide I I need to find my wife, I need to know her presence, I need to communicate something to her, have her communicate something to me, I I need to be with her. Would I be very smart if I went into the garage to find her? Looking for my wife, well, let me just go to the garage. It's not really a place where she hangs out, actually. There's just a bunch of tools down there. It kind of smells down there. It's not, um, not really great ambiance if you're wanting to get some work done. It would be silly of me to go looking for her in the garage when I know full well she's basically in those four rooms. With a lot of people need to understand this about Christ. Christ is... He draws near to his people in the means of grace. And he's made known full well where it is that he lives and where he can be found. You're not necessarily going to find Christ playing Xbox. You're not going to find Christ out on the golf course. Um, You're not going to find Christ necessarily at the coffee shop. But there are some rooms where you can find Christ. You can find Christ in the scriptures, in the Bible room. You can find him in the prayer room. You can find him in the assembly of his saints, and you can find him in the Lord's Supper. Christ is present in the means of grace. And so often, Christian people are looking for Christ in all the wrong places. I feel like I'm, I'm dry spiritually, and I'm not really uh, understanding Christ and experiencing Christ's grace in my life. What's the first question you think I'm going to ask? Well, are you availing yourself of the means of grace? Because that's where Christ reveals himself. That's where Christ in a special way makes himself known. And he does that for us. One of the ways he does that for us is in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, Christ is present by his Holy Spirit. Now, I should say this. uh, We do not believe, as some believe, that Christ is physically present. Physically present. In the bread And in the cup, as though mystically, when we uh, drink the grape juice in a physical sense, becomes the physical blood of Jesus Christ. And when we take the bread, it becomes the physical body of Jesus Christ. Some of you may know that's a doctrine known as transubstantiation. Roman Catholics believe that. We do not. Uh, We do not believe that Christ is physically present in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper on the basis of the latter half of Hebrews and the various institutions of the Lord's Supper. We believe this sacrament to be symbolic. 
But make no mistake, though we do not believe that Christ is physically present in the elements, we do believe that He really is truly present. He's present by His Spirit. Christ is spiritually present, really, truly, spiritually present in a special way in the Lord's Supper. He's not physically here. We don't believe we're physically digesting the body of Jesus Christ, but spiritually Christ is present. And we do commune with Him around the Lord's table. Make no mistake, when God's people gather around the table, Christ is present. And as I love to say with the other means of grace, so with the Lord's Supper, we ought to go to Christ and find Him in the Lord's Supper and commune with Him. He's prepared to meet with you. He's prepared to meet with us as we commune with Him around the table. Now, fourthly, what's happening here at the Lord's Supper? Here, here in the Lord's Supper, our faith is fed. Here, our faith is fed. The Lord's Supper is a gift to Christ's people, and it's meant to bolster their faith. Here we're given a vivid picture of the sacrifice of Christ and we're supposed to believe. Our actual taking of the elements, our actual physical eating and drinking is supposed to be a symbol of an inward reality, specifically our taking of Christ by faith. You know, the symbolism doesn't end with the bread and the cup. It's not just that Christ's body is symbolized. It's not just that His blood is symbolized. Our faith is going to be symbolized in this event. When you reach for that bread and take it, Jesus said, take from it all of you. You're symbolizing, you're laying hold of Christ by faith. That's real symbolism right there. And we should enter into that. We should recognize that this morning we're going to actually stand and come and partake of the elements. You should think, I'm coming to Christ by faith. I'm taking the bread by faith. I'm taking the cup by faith. This is a symbolic expression of an inward reality that is my laying hold of Christ and His sacrifice for sins by faith. Here in the supper, our faith is fed. I came across an interesting quote this week that I want to read for you. It's by a Scottish minister in the early 1600s named Robert Bruce. Not to be confused with Robert the Bruce for, for those Braveheart fans out here. Uh, this is Robert Bruce, the Scottish minister. Okay? But to summarize the quote, I think it's really poignant the way he expresses this reality. He basically argues that in the Lord's Supper, you don't get a, a better Christ than what you get in the Word preached. But you do get Christ better in the Supper than you would have had by only having the Word preached. He's not seeking to pit the Word against the Lord's Supper, but he's saying the Word is one way in which we get Christ. You don't get a new Christ in the Supper, but, but it's like it's taken to the next level. We experience, even, even more so now in the Supper, the presence of Christ. Here's the quote from Robert Bruce. You get a better grip of the same thing in the sacrament than you got by the hearing of the Word only. That same thing which you possess by the hearing of the word, you now possess more fully. God has more room in your soul through your receiving of the sacrament than he could otherwise have by your hearing of the word only. What then you ask is the new thing we get? We get Christ better than we did 
before. We get the thing which we had more fully, that is, with a surer apprehension than we had before. We get a better grip on Christ now. For by the sacrament my faith is nourished, the bounds of my soul are enlarged, and so where I had but little of Christ before, as it were, between my finger and my thumb, now I get him in my whole hand. And indeed, the more my faith grows, the better grip I get of Christ Jesus. Thus the sacrament is very necessary, if only for the reason that we get Christ better and get a firmer grasp of him by the sacrament than we could have before, end quote. I want you to hear me carefully. We get Christ in all his fullness in the word preached. Robert Bruce is not arguing that somehow the gospel preached is deficient for bringing about faith in people. He's a faithful preacher of the word. He believed in Romans 10 that faith comes through the preaching of God's word. But he acknowledged the truth that Christ himself acknowledges that the Lord's Supper is a gift to our faith to bolster our faith. It's like you can tell your spouse, I love you. But then you can kiss your spouse. And in a, a magnified way, communicate it by a symbol of your love. Well, in the Lord's Supper, the Lord is giving us this symbol of the reality of His body broken and His blood shed for sinners. In the Lord's Supper, our faith is fed. And I should say at this point, that in the Lord's Supper, our faith is fed even when our faith is low. And we get this idea, I think I know where it comes from, uh, that the Lord's Supper is meant for those who are uh, really strong in the faith, they're not particularly struggling with any uh, intense sins at the moment, that they uh, don't have any, any records of wrongs, they've already kind of taken care of that in preparation for the Lord's Supper. Well, I think that's a really crummy view of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a gift to God's people. It's meant to bolster our faith, not only when we're on a, a mountaintop experience and our faith is strong, we're having great victory over our sin, but we're also to take the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters, when our faith is low. And you might argue that's precisely when we need to take it. When we're feeling weak, when we're struggling with sin and we need to be reminded again of Christ's blood shed for the remission of sins. Perhaps you're struggling with assurance and you feel like, I struggle even knowing if I'm a Christian, how could I take the Lord's Supper? Well, the hope is that in the context of taking the Lord's Supper, you'll be refreshed. Here is the blood of Christ symbolized. Here's His body broken, symbolized. It's cogent, it's tangible. And I've done this in the Lord's Supper. I've held the cup up and, and looked at it as a symbol of what Christ has done on my behalf. And what happens, my faith is assured. And I recognize, yes, I believe. And I'm going to Christ once again in faith. The Lord's Supper, listen to me, it's for sinners. It's for people whose faith is low. Think of the disciples. It's no coincidence when the Lord's Supper was instituted. What happened in, in Mark's account in Mark 14, immediately following the institution of the Lord's Supper, what happens? The disciples are fighting over who's going to be first in the kingdom of heaven. How strong was their faith, do you think, when they took the Lord's Supper? What happens just a few hours later? The shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter. And they start denying they even know Christ. So I'm just speculating here, but how strong do you think their faith was when they first took the Lord's Supper? And yet Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Take each one of you and do this in remembrance of me. If you're feeling low today, like your faith has not been as robust as you want it to be, don't excommunicate yourself from the Lord's Supper. Go to Christ in the context of the Lord's Supper and have your faith fed in the context of these symbols and all that they 
symbolized. The Lord's Supper is for failures. The Lord's Supper is for sinners and for those who are weak in the faith. When our candle is burning low, let the Lord's Supper come like oil and ignite your faith. Fifthly, what's happening here? Here, the death of Christ is proclaimed. And I need to move more quickly now in these last few points. But here, the death of Christ is proclaimed. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There are some who say the proclamation at the Lord's Supper takes place in what's happening right now, that there always needs to be a sermon when the Lord's Supper is proclaimed. I think that's misgiven. I think there ought to be a sermon. If there's not truth ascribed to these symbols, we're just drinking grape juice and eating bread. There needs to be the Word. But the proclamation that takes place is not the preacher. Proclamation is the congregation. They're the ones doing the proclaiming. As we take the cup and as we take the bread, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. There's a horizontal component here. We're proclaiming the gospel to one another. We're proclaiming Christ to one another. That's why uh, when we take these elements, we're all going to sit in our seats and we're not going to just take it individually. We're going to take it in unison as a collective proclamation of what we believe about the gospel and about the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say, this is one of the reasons why, uh, for some of you children and some of you who don't know the Lord, we're not going to ask that you leave the room. Because we want you to hear and to see our proclamation of the gospel. We want you to witness this vivid, cogent, tangible picture of the gospel itself, the broken body of Christ and His blood shed for sinners. You might know in the early church, they used to uh, uh, ask that anyone who was not a member would leave. I take serious issue with that. Because those who would leave, who were not believers, who had not come to join the church, they missed out on this wonderful proclamation. The Lord's death is being proclaimed in the context of the Lord's Supper. But now very quickly here, sixthly, here in the Lord's Supper, the coming of Christ is anticipated. Back in Matthew 26, verse 29, you don't need to turn there, but it reads, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I hope that we think this every time we come to the Lord's table. We're anticipating the return of our Savior. We're anticipating taking this supper with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. And there should be a yearning in our hearts as we take the bread, as we take the cup. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I long for that day when I will drink of this cup new with Christ in the Father's kingdom. There's anticipation here. We're reaching forward. We're looking ahead. We're anticipating the return of our Savior. And seventhly and finally, here in the Lord's Supper, the unity of the church is expressed. Here in the Lord's Supper, the unity of the church is expressed. And I would encourage you uh, to read when you go home today, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11. Um, it's a very different context from ours. There's massive amounts of division and fraction in the body of Christ being expressed at the Lord's table. Some people are being kept from partaking. Some are coming early and gorging themselves and getting drunk on the wine. And the poor are being put out. There's all this division that's taking place in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul sternly rebukes this congregation. Because they don't discern the unity of the body of Christ. That this is a symbol of the unity of God's people. But let me turn your attention just to one verse. And it's 1 Corinthians 10. 
First Corinthians 10, verse 17. Paul makes his argument and says that there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There's one faith, there's one Lord, there's one baptism, and there's one loaf of bread. Because there's one Savior through whom we can be saved. And it was His body that was broken for us. It's an expression of our unity. We who are we're different people, we come from different backgrounds, but we've been saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to Him by faith. And His body has been broken for us and shed for us. And therefore we come in unity. It's an expression of our love for one another and our unity as God's people. That we partake of this supper together here in the sacrament, in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, there's a horizontal component. Not only do we go to Christ by faith and lay hold of Him, but we express our unity with one another in the context of the Lord's Supper. Amen. Seven things, and it's not everything that's expressed here, but seven things that are expressed here in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. And um, I'm going to ask that those parents who have small children in the nursery, uh, if as the song is being sung, if you would go and retrieve your children, because especially for this first observance of the Lord's Supper, we want our nursery workers to be able to come in and enjoy the Lord's Supper with us. Uh, So I will pray. Zach will come and lead a song. And I'll ask that during that song you go and retrieve your children. And we'll transition to a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it's so meaningful to us to come now as a body of your people and to celebrate this wonderful and meaningful ordinance given to your church of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the gift that it is to our faith. We thank you that here the death of Christ is symbolized. and The death of our Savior is remembered. We thank you for the opportunity we have to take what are only symbols and yet are symbols of a a true thing, a reality that has taken place in the hearts of your people, that you have appropriated the sacrifice of your Son to our hearts by faith, that His body has been broken, that His blood has been shed, and here we have a cogent and visible and symbolic picture of that in the Lord's table. Bless us now and move upon us to call to our minds and to our hearts everything that we ought to meditate upon and think upon as we take the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.